It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE Community Show and this show are now available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe and rate us to help others find the shows. I'm Kay Wenigal, and today I'm talking with Anna Skarbek, an Australian businesswoman and former non-executive director, investment banker, policy advisor and lawyer. Anna has led ClimateWorks since its inception in 2009, guiding ClimateWorks' independent research and advisory work, analysing emissions reductions opportunities and partnering with government and business to unlock barriers to implementation. Prior to ClimateWorks, Anna was the vice president advisory at Climate Change Capital in London, working as an investment advisor dedicated to raising and deploying capital for low-carbon activities. Previously in Australia, she worked as Senior Policy Advisor to the Victorian Deputy Premier and Minister for Environment, Water and Climate Change. Anna was the inaugural director at Australia's Green Investment Bank, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, for its first five years, and an inaugural director of the Carbon Market Institute. Hi, Anna. Thanks for joining me. Hello. Oh, Anna, you, you are currently CEO of ClimateWorks Australia and your CV is very impressive and daunting. How do you manage to fit all that in? Well, that's been my whole career. So it hasn't all been at one time. But since I began working, since I left uni, I have, have known that the solutions to climate change were available, but we needed to redirect investment towards them and help harness the power of markets to do that. And so I've tried to choose roles that first, when I was a young graduate, gave me the skills in understanding energy financing and the way investment works. And then as I became more experienced, enabled me to go more deeply into that and to specialise in it, which is what the opportunity in London provided. But it also taught me that the markets were struggling to harness that opportunity when there weren't policy frameworks that helped address what economists call the externality of carbon emissions or environmental damage and that policy is needed to level the playing field so that it can be attractive to make investments that improve the environment or don't harm it compared to other investments. And so that's why I chose to work in state government, working for the environment minister and and what became Victoria's first Minister for Climate Change, to have a role in help creating that policy. My career has, has I guess, uh, worked at the intersection of both of those, as well as issues that, that relate to it, as you highlighted, because they do, work, they do need to work together. And it sounds like you were at the forefront of that sort of thinking. Are there many investment bankers in the environmental space, or were you one of the earlier ones? There are more now, that's for sure. Certainly in the earlier days of my career, it, it was unusual. I was usually perhaps one of the only bankers in an, in an environment circle or one of the only green types in a banking circle. But that is changing now. Most of the big banks now have sustainability teams. My old bank, Macquarie Bank, bought the UK Green Investment Bank and now has a very large green investment group within Macquarie and um, the super funds and pension funds all have sustainability analysts and investors now. It's certainly not the majority of the staff in the Australian pension funds, but they all now do have specialist teams. So it's a much bigger sector and there's a peak body now, the investor group on climate change, which brings those investors together in Australia. So it is a growing sector. I've this year been part of a new collaboration across the whole finance sector, known as ASFI, the Australian Sustainable 
Municipal Finance Initiative, which is bringing together Australia's biggest banks and insurers and investors to look at how to make the finance system more sustainable. ASPI, so Australian Sustainable Finance, finance Initiative. Initiative. Yep. ASPI. Is that a fairly new organisation? Yes, it is. It was just launched uh, last year, late last year, with a remit to spend a year or so developing a roadmap for the Australian sustainable Australian finance system to help it become more sustainable. And it follows a rapidly developing global policy movement in this realm. There is now a global network of central banks called the Network for Greening the Financial System, the NGFS, and around that network is financial regulators and central banks, and that it has been supported by a number of other policy processes. For example, in Europe, there was an EU high-level expert group that created a policy framework around sustainable finance. The UK has a green finance initiative, and there are a number of initiatives in Asia as well. So there is increasing focus on this by policymakers, and so the investment banks and investment advisors are also uh, paying close attention to the evolving policy framework and looking for and hungry for more opportunities for green investments as well. It certainly sounds like it's a growing movement, this green finance. We spoke to Emma Hurd recently from IGCC and the investment group Climate Council. Right. And she was saying similar things, that the organisation, business funds, investors are, are really clamouring to, to get on board with the green financing. Yes, many are. Certainly the, the major leaders are. Uh, we're not there yet in terms of it being widespread across the whole market. So there are still many, many investment firms that wouldn't be specialising in this field, but more and more are aware of it and some are dedicated to it and the largest ones are uh, trying to make it more widespread across their organisation. As an investment banker, how do you think that experience informs your work with ClimateWorks? In a number of ways. Certainly, as you've learned, helping shift the finance sector is a very important mechanism for accelerating action across policy and in, in the corporate sector, so across the economy. It's, it's, a, it's a powerful tool. But also there's an element of the brokering that investment bankers do in terms of supporting transactions to happen. So helping energy generation projects get built, helping financiers be matched with the clients and the companies that need the finance. And uh, a lot of what ClimateWorks does, even though we're a non-profit, we're not a commercial entity, what we find is there are still a lot of gaps in decarbonisation pathways and roadmaps, gaps between policy frameworks not yet being fully developed, gaps with best practice not being widespread in corporate actions, for example, gaps between federal and state actions. And so we find, particularly with the support of philanthropy and, and our organisation being neutral, independent, non-partisan, that we do a lot of that brokering, that we can be um, a convener of alliances and, and progress and that, that we find it does take a multi-sector approach. So we're working in the land sector, in industry, in the built environment, on transport and infrastructure. In all of that work, the solution doesn't lie with one single entity. And so the mindset that I brought from my investment banking career around brokering, about helping bring the parties to the table who need to do the deal, that applies, I find, in public policy making for those of us that are trying to advance the pace of decarbonisation in Australia. It does take a lot of convening to bring many parties to the table in order to make it happen. I can imagine it wouldn't be an easy task. But getting on to another area, you previously worked and served on the board of Amnesty International Australia for six years and you're the director of the Big Issue Australia and the linking Melbourne Authority. Obviously, social, social justice is important to you. Is this something that we need to be factoring into our transition to a zero carbon society? Yes, of course. And increasingly, when I view our work through the lens of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, I see the bringing together of my earlier career with human rights and my later career in environment 
the sustainable development goals bring all of those together. What excites me actually is that the opportunity for many of the solutions to be supporting other solutions as well so that, that we can address climate change in ways that also improve social equity, for example, that improve human well-being, human health, and a number of the decarbonisation solutions do have benefits as well as, well as risks if we don't address climate change. It would make, uh, it certainly has a, um, a disproportionately negative impact on vulnerable workers, especially in developing economies. And from the pragmatic political reality uh, that sometimes what has slowed down action on climate change is the political challenge of supporting workers in the sectors that are most affected, particularly fossil fuel sectors. And so nations that have done well in this, um, particularly uh, in Europe, there are some great examples in Germany, have supported the workers in fossil fuel sectors uh, whilst supporting the transition away from the burning of the fossil fuels. And so I'm hopeful that one of the silver linings perhaps from the COVID crisis uh, is the support that Australian governments and societies have shown workers whose jobs have been impacted by a global crisis. The JobKeeper payments were provided very rapidly to uh, workers through this crisis as the shutdown has affected people's work. And so climate change is another global crisis that impacts some workers' jobs, not as many as COVID. And so I hope that there might be some lessons that we can transfer from the support that, that voters have shown willingness for taxpayer funds to be used for that purpose, and that that might be a way to help overcome some of the obstacles in addressing climate change. Yes, it is interesting the government's response to the COVID crisis compared to the climate change crisis. And it, it has many similar issues, as you say, social justice, jobs and so forth. So is that something we should be working on right now in terms of both assisting the climate and the, uh, the, the social issues that we're, we're now seeing with the COVID crisis? Well, yes, uh, there have been a vast number of reports and uh, advice, ours included and many others from right through from United Nations institutes through to um, uh, large private and public economic institutions that have shown that there, there is what we call this opportunity for a double dividend, an opportunity to address the impact of the COVID crisis and provide immediate response and economic stimulus in a way that can also address the climate crisis. So as we see governments looking to rebuild economies and help restart the economies, um, we have identified, as have many others, some terrific opportunities to align the rebuilding in a way that helps rebuild in a decarbonised, um, help, to, help, to help embed decarbonisation into the rebuilding and help realign the economy to one that um, is aligned with the commitments in the Paris Agreement. And so to try and, as people talk about, kill two birds with one stone, um, there is certainly that opportunity to do that as we come out of the COVID crisis. And there's plenty of evidence to show what those sorts of opportunities are in terms of investing in clean infrastructure, investing in renewable, renewable energy generation, which uh, can support job creation in the infrastructure, but also enable future job creation through new manufacturing that can be um, uh, expanded in Australia using the available renewable energy, as an example. Lots of nature-based solutions that can provide immediate jobs uh, through ecological restoration, vegetation, tree planting and other um, um, agricultural-focused investments that provide short-term jobs as well as long-term carbon benefits. Um, and there's a, a, a raft of other opportunities in retrofitting our buildings, making them more efficient and more comfortable and lower energy bills as everyone's working from home at the moment. There's some great programs uh, that have been running in the UK and Europe for a long time that, have, that could be, but haven't yet been applied in Australia, which also, again, create short-term jobs work that's localised in Australia, not, it's not outsourced or automated, um, and provides immediate benefits in lowering energy bills, 
while also removing fossil fuel emissions from the economy. Anna, I think you've very well summarised BZE's one million jobs plan, <laughs> which is now up to 1.8 million jobs. Yes, absolutely. And of course, your listeners would be familiar with that. And, um, and our research is consistent with, uh, it, consistent with BZE's and we, we've been very pleased to see the additional analysis that quantifies the jobs that come from the decarbonisation investments and to show that win-win. Yeah, exactly. You've been with ClimateWorks since it was formed in 2009. So can you tell us some of the highlights of the past 11 years? Sure. It's been a roller coaster in that decade in terms of climate policy in Australia. Um, I look at the decade across sort of the first half and the second half and the, and the importance of that is because the Paris Agreement is roughly in the middle, like about five years ago, late 2015, early 2016. Um, and that was a really significant shift. Prior to that, our major wins included helping map for Australia the first ever low-carbon growth plan for Australia. So we worked with McKinsey and used their cost curve framework to show all the technologies lined up in order of cost, some of which saved money, some of which were low cost and some of which were higher and showed all the um, technological opportunities available in Australia at that time 10 years ago and highlighted that it would take a combination of policies, carbon pricing and other uh, direct actions such as investment and regulations and standards to help the market adopt all of those technologies, but that the solutions were available if we did those um, policy measures. And that work uh, won the Eureka Prize in Australia in that year, which is sort of like the Oscars for science um, and helped guide a number of policy actions and helped inform what became Australia's carbon pricing mechanism, which went broader than just carbon pricing and included measures for investment through the CFC and included in um, grants and other investments in energy efficiency, which was a big part of what we highlighted was the cost saving part of the technological roadmaps. And then the science at the UN was updated and the Paris Agreement uh, was negotiated and ClimateWorks partnered with a global coalition to help illustrate for the first time what does it look like to stay under the two degrees limit. And this moved from the incremental approach of cost curve, starting where you are today and looking ahead a decade at the technologies, which was what had won us those awards previously. And what the Paris Agreement and the IPCC reports at that time did was change that and start from where we need to be and work backwards. And that was the two degrees limit on global warming, which means net zero emissions by mid-century. And we worked backwards from that with a global team of 17 other countries and we partnered with CSIRO and ANU in Australia to show back then, uh, this is 2014, that Australia could achieve net zero emissions by mid-century and stay under the two degree limit. And because all those countries also showed the same and this was presented to our government as well as to the United Nations Secretary General and the General Assembly, we are confident that through the international alliances, that helped provide governments the confidence to endorse the Paris Agreement and ratify it as occurred that year. That was a really special time and a major achievement worldwide, and we were very pleased to have played a part in that. Since then, we've seen... A, a rapid increase in interest in the scenarios for staying under two degrees from state governments, from investment firms, from banks, and that has guided most of our work in the, in the subsequent five years. And we've worked on the economy-wide scenarios as well as sector-specific measures because we find that each one's set of solutions is particular to the sector and so then are the policy measures. And that's where the convening comes in that I mentioned earlier, that it still takes, even when the solutions can be identified, it still takes quite a lot of effort to bring the players together because climate change is such a cross-cutting issue. And so we need a combination of policymakers and investors and the solution providers and the existing industry uh, representatives and incumbent companies to come together and, and work out the best way to accelerate the deployment of these new solutions. 
That's a very impressive decade of work. Certainly has kept us busy. Thank you. <laughs> and on that, you just recently launched a very exciting tool called Net Zero Momentum Tracker. Can you tell us about that? Yes. We did this because we were seeing this momentum that once we were able to articulate the pathway to net zero emissions um, and that that became globally the underpinning of the Paris Agreement, it, it, it has become now the central commitment and ask of governments as well as of companies and of investors. And increasingly there are alliances around the world that are adopting that and, the, and, and coalitions of the willing, as we see. Um, uh, companies and investors also taking on the commitment as well as all of Australia's state governments um, who have adopted that target formally and we worked with many to do that. But what we found is whilst we knew that, uh, it wasn't so easy to observe it for the general public um, or even other companies considering making this sort of commitment. Um, it was quite hard to um, observe and compare and contrast the different ways companies were announcing whether they were um, achieving net zero emissions on their headquarters emissions and operations or, or also the operations of their customers, whether they were just talking about renewable energy or they were also covering transport, for example, and their supply chains. So there was a lot of variation and technical detail and there wasn't one place uh, that held all of this information. And so we worked with our philanthropic supporters and Monash Sustainable Development Institute to put it to put this together and it's quite an analytical effort actually to extract the information from the company's annual reports but we've been methodology we've been methodically working through the sectors we've done the top 20 largest banks the top 20 largest property companies um, the largest local governments in australia um, retail companies and we're continuing to work through the sectors with our uh, team of analysts summarising the commitments that those companies have made and showing what best practice looks like. So a Paris-aligned net zero emissions by 2050 commitment needs to cover the whole supply chain, not just the operations of the company, but the operations of its products and services as well. And so we try and show the, the four pillars of decarbonisation, energy efficiency, renewables, fuel switch and sequestration. And we unpack each company's commitments to show which of those, if, if any or all, have been addressed in their commitment and whether they are fully aligned with the Paris Agreement or perhaps partially. And that's the consistent methodology we've applied to each of those sectors. And that information is now available on the Net Zero Momentum Tracker website. What that's we have found is that it has documented the momentum and also helped create it. So we know companies have looked at it and studied their competitors and use the information to help garner the support internally that they've needed in order to show, uh, to, to help um, secure agreement internally for their own commitments to be increased. I'd imagine that would have been an unexpected outcome. Not unexpected. Um, we know that uh, providing information in this way, transparently and consistently, is a very powerful supporting tool. Um, and again, you mentioned earlier my banking background. We know uh, most of ClimateWorks staff have worked in more than one sector. We understand um, the pressures inside companies. They face multiple goals of, of cost pressure and revenue growth and competing attention for internal capital. And so we, we knew that it would be helpful if we could show what others were doing, what good looked like and make it easier to um, help support that momentum. There is better understanding now than there used to be uh, of addressing climate change and of net zero, but there isn't always the capability or the knowledge about that. And so we have found that we have helped boost that momentum by making it more accessible. I could just imagine how much work that would be in putting something like that together. Have you been able to identify what sectors are the most proactive with their emissions targets? So far of the study, and this is a work in progress, we haven't yet done all of the sectors. Um, so far of the sectors that we have studied, um, we found that the property sector had a larger, slightly larger percentage of companies that had 
um, net zero emissions commitments that were more aligned with the full Paris objectives. Um, the, the banking sector also, um, particularly the big four banks, were well represented in the better quality um, assessments that we undertook. Um, in transport and retail, there's a bit of a way to go still. So there were less of the commitments at the upper rankings. Uh, and in local government, we found actually a significant proportion of Australia's population is now covered by a local government that has a target or aspiration to reach net zero emissions by 2050 for all or most of the whole community's emissions, not just the council's operations themselves. So about a third of Australia's largest local governments have made that commitment. Um, and I know Beyond Zero Emissions is working with many of them. It doesn't mean that they have control over all of that though. And so they're working now on how do they work in, in alliances to help actually influence those community emissions. And, and, and that's a similar challenge for some of the companies whose, uh, whose own investments might cover some of the emissions, but not all. And it's time now for them to join alliances and work with the customers uh, to ensure that the whole supply chain can adopt the net zero emissions approach. And it's heartening to know that local councils are doing so much in this space and uh, certainly quite a number of them have also declared a climate emergency, over 100, I believe. In July, ClimateWorks released the Decarbonisation Futures Plan and you mentioned earlier the five key sectors, electricity, buildings, transport, industry and land. In which of those sectors are we making the best headway and in which sector are we missing the biggest opportunities? Great question. We assess those sectors uh, for the availability of solutions and the maturity of those solutions. So uh, whether the technology was already mature or in demonstration stage or still emerging. And we found that buildings and electricity have the most mature solutions and can fully decarbonise without needing to wait for, if you like, the emerging technologies to mature. Uh, and so that's quite well understood in many, uh, in many parts of the uh, climate community, but it's, but it's not yet being fully adopted. So if we take buildings, for example, uh, existing buildings have a long way to go to achieving net zero emission standards and new buildings will be supported soon by an upgrade to the minimum standards. But we know that best practice standards, for example, uh, the Green Star ratings from the Green Building Council are moving ahead of the building code, which is the minimum standard. And they are looking to set standards of 100% renewable buildings for any Green Star building, for example, um, in the coming decade. And so new buildings should be able to move quickly to achieve a net zero emissions goal, but the existing buildings will need a lot of support in the, in the retrofit through information, mandatory ratings. And, and in, in the UK, for example, it's compulsory to upgrade or to achieve an, an energy rating for your home at the time of sale uh, or lease. And that helps catalyse people to do the upgrade at that time. So even where there are mature solutions, we find they're not necessarily being adopted. Um, in electricity, we found, of course, that it's, we now know we can achieve a, decarb a fully decarbonised grid through zero emissions electricity in the coming uh, decade or so, in the, in, in the 2030s, to achieve net zero. Um, but that we would need to see by the end of 20, this decade, um, the share of renewables reach the high 70s percent, so uh, over three quarters of Australia's electricity being renewable in the coming decade. And that's not yet policy uh, at state or federal level. So the question around where are we doing the best, the solutions are available, but we, we are not yet deploying them at the pace needed. In other sectors, transport, agriculture and industry, there are mature solutions for some of the emissions, but we will still need more innovation and development, uh, particularly to bring forward some of the emerging solutions. So, for example, for long-haul transport, freight, um, 
there is the potential to use hydrogen fuel cells uh, in, in some vehicles, for example, but that's not yet widely deployed, although it is beginning to be. Um, and similarly for aviation, there's been work on um, sustainable biofuels, but not yet a market really in that. Um, and so that can be supported through policy. And in industry, there are technological solutions available that are exciting, that show that we could even decarbonise some of the hard to abate sectors, such as steel and aluminium uh, and cement, but that there's a lot of work to bring those solutions into commercialisation um, and into test deployment and then larger scale deployment. Similarly in agriculture, there's some really interesting work going on around managing the methane emissions from livestock, allowing us to use algae and seaweed and, and, some, and even vaccines potentially uh, that help reduce methane production during the livestock management during their lives. Um, that's being tested at the moment, but again, when it's, you, it, you consider it an emerging solution and needs support, but has some really high value um, emissions reduction potential if, if we can deploy it, and that will enable our agriculture sector to continue uh, to be um, a, 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 um, production, a high source production of, of food for Australia and the world. So lots of opportunity, but it's not yet being deployed and, and quite a lot of it still needs support in those, in those sectors in particular. You mentioned that existing buildings were finding it much harder to get to the standards that are required, whereas new building construction is able to meet the, the green standards much more rapidly. Is that the same with transport and industry, where existing industry or transport vehicles are an investment that are very hard to, to change? Well, uh, certainly for transport, uh, most of the modelling takes the assumption that the upgrade, the investment to upgrade the technology occurs at the end of life of the vehicle, for example. So you've really only got one opportunity to improve a vehicle's emissions, and that's at the time of purchasing the new vehicle. So the missed opportunity has been that we've not created any standards in Australia for the emissions of new vehicles. And we are now behind the rest of the world in the, the allowable emissions that uh, a vehicle uh, can produce in Australia. So the same model car in Australia will produce more emissions than that model car in, in the UK would do. And that's before we, we try and convert the fleet to electric. So there are a lot of missed opportunities, um, but they're not hard in the sense that the technology is available. It's about setting the standards so that at every time consumers make the decision, the transaction occurs to purchase the vehicle, that's the moment of upgrade. And so we often talk about moments of lock-in or lock-out of emissions. And transport is one of those where you lock in emissions for about a decade if you miss the moment at the time of purchase to purchase the lower emissions vehicle. And so that's where standard setting um, plays a part because not all consumers can educate themselves on the emission standards, for example, and it's, it's a much simpler and more efficient way to do it if it's the national standard. On electric vehicles, it's a more complex story. It needs supporting infrastructure, obviously, through the charging infrastructure, and, and that is um, a key focus in a lot of the jurisdictions that are trying to make progress on EVs, is to make sure that that supporting infrastructure is there, and then that helps the market feel more confident to bring in the EV models and start promoting them to consumers. And so you have a bit of a chicken and egg if you haven't got the supporting infrastructure available. Talking about setting standards, you wrote an article about the UK having a National Climate Change Act and asked, why don't we? Why do you think we should? You've obviously outlined one of the potential um, benefits. Yes. What we found in the UK when I worked there and what we now see in Victoria where there has been a Climate Change Act adopted that is quite similar to the UK one uh, is that it helps support all across government the focus on starting where we need to be, so looking at what does the end goal of net zero emissions look like for each sector of the economy. And so when a Climate Change Act um, is put in place, it, it 
it obviously can't regulate the specific policies that a government would choose and that those things change year to year as the market evolves. And so legislation is a blunt tool and isn't, isn't the tool for defining the actual solutions. But by imposing the obligation on governments to transparently report progress and importantly, to commit to the end goal and work backwards from it. Then those emissions trajectories, so how fast, what's the, what does the line look like of emissions coming down to zero by mid-century, sets the, sets the benchmark for what's the goal to aim for every five years. That then helps um, all the ministers who have their own portfolios, housing and health and transport and agriculture and finance and treasury, all see the common goal, which is uh, how to help the economy's emissions come down by those amounts every five years. And each portfolio is then um, empowered and supported through central analysis and also um, expertise that they can draw on that's specific to their, to their own portfolio. And bring that together, just like the Paris Agreement does for the whole world, what are the capabilities of each portfolio, how much um, has technology advanced and how easy is it for those sectors to um, achieve reductions? As we mentioned, buildings and electricity can achieve much faster reductions than transport and agriculture can. And so by setting an economy-wide goal and then allowing the portfolios to assess what they can do, then government brings that analysis together and presents it to parliament. The, the transparency of that helps keep everyone on their toes, helps keep a focus on this when other things such as COVID and coronavirus and uh, the political cycle always creates distractions. And so having an act enables um, a, a team to always be resourced to focus on this. And in the case of the UK process and Victoria adopted part of this, an independent committee of experts to provide advice. What should those emissions targets be to ensure that they're aligned with the science? What are some of the best practice solutions available worldwide um, and to have a central team gathering that expertise and making it available across government is the other value of the Act. You, you don't need legislation necessarily to do that, by, but by enshrining it in legislation along with the obligation to meet these emissions reduction goals, um, it helps ensure um, a consistent focus on it. And that's important for investors to know that if they um, make spend the time and effort and resources on people and technology to provide solutions that they know there's a legislated process where the government will always be requiring these solutions on behalf of us who 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 um who seek the safer climate and the future that that uh, we know we can achieve then the legislation helps send that longer term signal to the to investors in the market that the solutions will continue to be required and demanded and improved so that we can accelerate the pace because obviously the trajectory of emissions needs to continue coming down until we've reached zero. So there's a range of benefits from the legislation, mostly in its signalling power and its dedicated resourcing and support across government. Those portfolios, they all have a day job. <laughs> the health and housing and transport portfolios all have uh, already commitments and, um, and duties and climate becomes an additional one. So the Climate Change Act helps provide support across government by creating a framework um, and setting the benchmarks to work within to, to guide government action and show uh, the market and the voters the, um, the long-term direction and the short-term progress. Given that, do you think that the Climate Change Act concept is gaining traction nationally or will it really uh, be endorsed by other state governments? Uh, well, it did, it did gain traction nationally in the form of um, independent MP Zali Stegall's bill. She uh, created and proposed a, um, a climate change bill. It was uh, deferred because of COVID and Parliament not sitting at the moment, um, but certainly um, that kick-started quite a bit of national debate. Uh, and um, in the meantime, the Victorian government continues to um, uh, undertake its process and the reports that its independent um, uh, committee of experts produced are all publicly available and can help uh, guide other jurisdictions that might wish to do the same.
The goal of Climate Works is to achieve a transition to net zero emissions. How big and what type of role do you think carbon credits should play in this transition? Great question. Um, and there are a couple of functions of, of carbon credits. So you're referring there to what others might call um, offsets or, or the ability to purchase a reduction of emissions in another sector other than your own uh, to make up for emissions that you have created that you can't reduce yourself. And this is a very important part of a transition plan. And it's important for a few reasons. The activities themselves remove the emissions. And, and, it, and as far as the atmosphere is concerned, it doesn't matter where the removal comes from, it benefits the atmosphere. And so it, it's very helpful when um, increasing demand for offset credits means we can plant more trees, we can support more emission reduction projects on the land, but also in industry uh, and in agriculture, um, which uh, already can benefit from um, the Australian um, program of, of uh, carbon credits, the ACUs. But it's also got some other functions. By, by committing to use offsets to make your entire operations carbon neutral, um, or by being required to, which was um, part of the previous uh, national legislation, um, but which no longer exists, unfortunately. But many companies are taking on this obligation themselves um, uh, to fully offset their emissions. And when the companies do that, it does put an internal price on all their emissions. And what we found, um, our experience with the market, is that this then helps increase the focus by the company on how, on, how, on how much emissions they produce and what does it take to remove them. And as they find themselves needing to purchase credits for all their residual emissions, they, they find they look a little harder on how could they reduce them internally before needing to purchase the credits. As I mentioned, even when they do purchase the credits, that's beneficial because that activity does remove the emissions. But it also helps bring forward often the corporate investment in the solutions they could do themselves, for example, upgrading their own vehicles, securing renewable energy for themselves, and increasingly we find innovating in their products and services so that they can find a zero emissions way to produce their products and services and meet the, the customer demand from the outset. And we know that that's ultimately the goal, is to be able uh, to undertake all the um, activities in our economy in a zero emissions way. And so the offsets can, can buy time for some of the harder to um, abate sectors to bring in that technology. Um, it's certainly not a permanent solution. Uh, if we don't reduce the underlying emissions, we would ultimately eventually run out of land for, uh, for planting more trees to continually offset each year's new emissions. So, um, it, it, it needs to be seen in that light as a transition plan, but we also know that there will always be some residual emissions, and so we will always need the capability to invest in nature-based solutions and, and, um, and maintain that market. But it is quite a useful um, price signalling tool as well as a useful absolute reduction um, uh, or, or net reduction of emissions through these um, activities while hopefully increasing the incentive for companies to make their own products and services as zero emissions as possible from the outset. You mentioned that planting trees and using the land is a way of offsetting. Is that the best way or are there other good ways to do this? There's no single best way. We need them all. We really do. And a, a tonne of carbon is a tonne of carbon as far as it's... Um, impact on our climate is concerned and every tonne counts. So we are exponentially better off if we can keep warming under one and a half degrees than if we let it go to two degrees above industrial levels, for example. And right now we're on track to almost three degrees of warming. So every tonne matters. And, and so I, I firstly just respond to the question in that light to say they're all good. Um, and uh, a portfolio is also useful. So alongside tree planting, 
there are um, increasingly exciting integrated uh, on-farm opportunities for uh, improving soil carbon in, in supporting not just, for example, dedicated carbon forestry plantations, but also on-farm planting, which, which provides shelter belts for livestock, it improves water retention on land, for example. And um, these sorts of projects can be done with Indigenous engagement, they can also be done with biodiversity goals in mind and improving our natural capital um, and, and, and creating different types of vegetation. In addition to that, there are other offset credits that are available through um, industrial energy efficiency and other um, variety of, in Australia, it's been known as methodologies. Um, and all of those continue to be important. Eventually, um, it's likely that um, those activities should be absorbed into companies' net zero emissions plans, but in the moment they also classify as, um, as um, methodologies. And there are new innovations uh, emerging, blue carbon, for example, so looking at wetlands, oceans and seaweed, how can we support carbon sequestration wherever, wherever it can be achieved? And what, what I find interesting um, is that often in doing that, there are other benefits, as I mentioned, that it can improve um, land health in the, in the broader definition um, and improve our productivity and well-being at the same time. It is rather depressing to know that we're heading towards three degrees rather than the 1.5, which to me is the absolute limit we should be targeting. But you do say that this is a transformational decade, and I think that's a great way to think about it. We really need to mobilise now to make significant inroads into reducing emissions by 2030. So given that we have to reduce everything very quickly, what are the three things that each person could do to get us on track for net zero emissions? Great question. And you're absolutely right about this decade must be the transformational decade. And if it isn't, we, we really risk missing the moment and, and we will cross those temperature tipping points. Uh, and that is terrifying and it's very motivating and it's why we work as hard as we do on this cause. So um, what, can, what are the top three things that individuals can do? Certainly 100% um, renewables is, uh, is now possible. Um, without even getting solar panels on your own house, you can ensure that your electricity purchases are 100% green power. Um, you can also uh, work with community car share programs and so on if you can't afford an electric vehicle yet to ensure that there is support in your local council area and in your state and federal government for all the infrastructure that we need for transport and industry to be 100% renewable as well. You can also take this action further and, in, and demand or at least ask that all of the products and services that you consume be carbon neutral. Again, this is now available. Uh, the Australian government has an accrediting mechanism. It's, it's called its Climate Active Program. And you can ask your bank, your super fund, your supermarket, whether they are carbon neutral. And there is nothing stopping them today being fully carbon neutral. They can invest in the solutions themselves and they can offset the remainder through the government accredited program. And as we just discussed, in doing the offsetting, we find it increases the motivation to do the underlying um, reductions as well. So they would be uh, the first two. Um, and um, the third would be to ask your employer and your local government representatives, as I mentioned, local, state and federal. So staff engagement is increasingly um, uh, a very important avenue for motivating companies to do what they can do um, and continuing to engage and, and make your views known to your government representatives to ensure that the support exists for those policy frameworks to make it easier for the companies to do their bit. But you can, uh, you have quite a lot of power through your own realms of influence as an employee, a purchaser um, and an energy user yourself. There are three great tips for all of us. That's wonderful news to know that we can have an influence on this. 
Where can our listeners find out more? All the reports you've mentioned are available on our website, which is climateworksaustralia.org. And there are a plethora of good climate news sites now. If you are interested in the daily news fix, um, particularly good news solutions, um, there are so many, uh, there are too many for me to name, but even Bloomberg now has a Bloomberg Green section for, for business. Uh, there is Renew Economy in Australia and there are a range of curated news services if you, if you, if you want to explore on Google. Um, there are many associations providing summaries um, weekly and fortnightly and so on. And um, it is helpful to, to keep the motivation up to see what, uh, what solutions are, are being advanced around the world and, and in business and locally, um, but uh, also helpful to remain active yourselves. Terrific. Thanks so much for your time today, Anna. Thank you. It's a pleasure. We've been speaking to Anna Scarbeck from Climateworks Australia. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe to help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again next week. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Anna Scarbeck from Climateworks Australia. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level.